In our last episode, you heard about economic mobility. And in this episode, which is part two, you're going to hear again from Matthew Jackson, Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford and external faculty of the Santa Fe Institute. Now, we finished the last episode by saying that if you want to increase a child's economic mobility, then the single biggest factor that will affect it is economic connectedness. This episode, Matthew's going to talk a lot about economic connectedness in our workplaces, our religious gatherings, and in our schools. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Hello, everyone. We're back with Matthew. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be back. So in our last episode, which was part one of this two-part series, we started off talking about a massive study you've been involved in, which was essentially looking at social capital and mobility in the United States, particularly about how different types of social capital increase your mobility. In, in other words, increase your ability to move from essentially having a, a low socioeconomic life to moving up to a more more higher one. So how do we help people get ahead and, and what role does social capital play in that? Um, and we spent a lot of the episode talking about what the study found doesn't matter. And one of those was social cohesion. So really tight neighborhoods seem like a really good thing where people are holding people to account. But um, yes, they do lots of good things. But no, they aren't particularly correlated with um mobility. We also looked at civic engagement, so the level of volunteering and I suppose you'd say community spirit that you have. And again, lots of very good benefits for that. But in terms of social mobility and you're getting ahead, it doesn't make a big difference. And then we landed and we spoke very briefly in the last episode about the idea of economic connectedness. So let's get back into that. Probably start with redefining economic connectedness for us. Sure. So we're basically looking at people's social networks and asking how well connected are they across economic class lines. So if you look at a poor person, what fraction of their friends are above median income? So if that's 50%, then that means that they're mixing well in the population. So half their friends are above median income and the other half are below. So that would be a normal friendship pattern if you were just forming friendships at random. If instead they're close to zero, then that means they're isolated. They're not connected to the people who have above median income. They're just connected to the poor. And so those cross poor to rich connections are what we're measuring when we're looking at economic connectedness. And this has had, this just had a massive effect on your mobility. So, you know, there's a danger we could get very geeky here, but but actually measuring that economic connectedness and measuring above medium, um, below medium, measuring all these things was really, really difficult. You, you spoke in the last episode about using Facebook data. Talk us through just very quickly and as briefly as you can, what was it, what, two-year exercise for you to get some of these answers? Yeah, so, you know, the whole study took six years, and I, I would estimate that we spent about two years in making sure we were getting the right measures of, of income and socioeconomic standing. And, you know, part of the reason is that if we didn't have really accurate measures, 
we wouldn't be able to tell what's going on. So you, you really need to know what's happening. So, you know, we can see the connections quite easily in Facebook. So you can see the network and who's friends with whom, but seeing the income levels and those outcomes is something that you don't just see, you know, people aren't posting their incomes on their Facebook pages. So we had to infer that. And, you know, that's where this study could never have been done even a decade ago. You know, the machine learning techniques and the computing power techniques that we had available, we could put together a whole series of variables we can see about a person, you know, exactly where they live, where they, what's their Facebook usage pattern, when are they logging on, what are the IP addresses they're using, what phone model do they have, how expensive is their phone model, you know, which college did they go to. So we can use a whole bunch of things to really predict their income. And the machine learning techniques are pretty powerful. And putting that together with information we have from the census about incomes, we were able to predict incomes with pretty high accuracy. And so then you use that, you look at the economic connectedness between people, and you fundamentally found, if I'm going to simplify this greatly, that the more richer friends a poorer person has, the more likely it is that their mobility will increase over time. Yes, yeah. And you can actually look at it. So look at a kid in high school. Look at their parents' income. So find somebody who comes from the lower half of the distribution and look at their friend's parents' income. And that's a high predictor of where they're going to end up in life. It's a predictor, you know, so it, it predicts. We're not sure it causes it in some sense, but you know, certainly we've got a very, very strong correlation here. And in practical senses, what is that? So you've, you've obviously got, shall we say, poorer kids hanging out with richer kids and their parents. What, what do you think is happening there that actually allows that mobility to increase? Yeah, I, you know, and, and I think this is what separates it from these other social capital measures. A lot of it is when you look at kids in school, they're heavily influenced by their peers, right? I mean, kids are always paying attention to what their friends are doing. And if my friend is has their parents making sure they're doing their homework and they're turning their homework in all the time and they're getting good grades and they're studying for tests and exams, entrance exams for university and they're planning to go to university, that's my mindset, right? And so it sets my aspirations, it sets my norms of behavior, it also gives me basic information. You know, what does it take to get into college? They have siblings that have gone to college. If I don't have a sibling that's gone to college, you know, I don't even have any idea what college is like. These kinds of norms and information and so forth it all comes through the network. And then, you know, in the future, years down the line, these are the people that might be able to get me a, an interview and get my foot in the door at, at some job. And so having those friends makes a huge difference in you know what opportunities I have, what information I have, what aspirations I have, it all feeds off each other and it ends up being quite powerful. And it's independent of the incomes involved, isn't it? And what I mean by that is that you can increase people's incomes and you will, uh, to some degree, increase their mobility. But once you start actually driving up their economic connectedness to one another, you drive up mobility across the income range. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, take a kid who is in a relatively poor family and so forth, give them the same connections that a rich kid would typically have in terms of friendships. You do that, you increase their lifetime earnings by about 20%. So, you know, it can be a big effect to change somebody's social connections, at least in, in terms of predicted future incomes. It, so having those connections makes a difference in, in those outcomes eventually. 
And I think what's fascinating for me about this is this is you know, external to the ability of the child. It's really saying that if you create the environment that comes from having these economic connections that sort of put the road ahead, pave the way, shall we say, for the kid to be able to get that mobility and make it work. So there's two types of economic connectedness or two aspects to economic connectedness that you dug into that were really important. I think what we do is let's introduce them really, really quickly. And then let's see how they play out in some real world scenarios that you have in the data. So the first one of those is differences in high socioeconomic exposure. What's that? Yeah. So exposure just means, are there rich people around? So suppose I'm from below median income. If I'm living in a neighborhood where there's no rich kids, it's impossible. If my high school has zero rich kids in it, I can't be friends with them. So exposure is just how many of those people are around in my high school. If it's a 50-50 high school, I've got good exposure. If it's 90% poor and 10% rich, it's going to be pretty hard to have a lot of rich friends. And then the second one is differing friendship biases. What's that? Yeah, so what we call friending biases refers to the fact that then, you know, let's suppose I'm in a 50-50 school. That doesn't necessarily mean that I form those friendships. So I could have all those people around, but still end up with zero rich friends. And we call that friending bias. So it's sort of how far reduced am I from having the pattern that I should have given the exposure that I have. So conditional on having those people around, am I connecting to them? In your study, what I found really fascinating was you looked at these two aspects of economic connectedness in different environments, shall we say, interactive environments. And some big things jumped out. So let's start with the neighborhood. How does economic connectedness play out in the neighborhood? So neighborhoods differ pretty dramatically in their composition of you know income, ethnicity, and so forth. But it, it's interesting also, you know, if you look, say, in given areas, some counties can be really well integrated, but then when you start breaking that down into finer and finer bits, the rich people don't necessarily live in the same neighborhoods as the poor people. So once you look inside there, they could be very heavily segregated. So some places are good at exposing where there's lots of neighborhoods that, that are, are mixed in terms of incomes and other places are highly segregated so that, you know, the, the rich live in one part of the areas and the poor live in the other parts and just they never cross paths. And what do you find in neighborhoods where there is a good mix of above and, and below average? Yeah, so there you might say, OK, well, that should lead to high economic connectedness, right? You put them together. But surprisingly, you see very different patterns depending on where you are. So some neighborhoods, you know, you can look at, at two different cities that each have a well-balanced 50-50 mix of rich and poor, and you can see completely different economic connectedness patterns. So where you are in the United States actually says a lot about, you know, we compare, for instance, in the paper, we compare Minneapolis to Indianapolis, two similar sized cities, similar demographics and so forth. Minneapolis has high economic connectedness. Indianapolis has low economic connectedness. You know, there can be a lot of history behind that. There could be all kinds of things that determine that. But, you know, for whatever reasons, they have similar exposure, but very different friending bias. So fundamentally, if you're a kid, it's better to be growing up. If you're a low socioeconomic kid, it's better to be growing up in Minneapolis than Indianapolis, even though you're still the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that geography, you know, geography really matters. And especially just the local geography in, in terms of how well it's connecting people and what's actually happening. Are you exposed? 
are you friending? These things matter and, and they vary dramatically by region. Workplaces. What do you find with workplaces? Yeah, so workplaces are you know actually very good at exposing people to each other. So if you take a big company, you actually have people from a pretty wide spectrum of the income distribution. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to mix with each other, right? So it could be in a big company that the management never sees the low-skilled workers. And so you can actually see large companies where you see very low connectedness in terms of the friendship. So part of the beauty of the Facebook data is we're able to see whether or not I'm making friends in workplace or high school or my neighborhood because we can see the different places that people, you know, which high schools people came from and then the high school friendships. So we can map all that out and assign these to different places and see which places are good at mixing people in terms of exposure, which people, which places are good at actually forming those friendships. Workplaces, good exposure, not necessarily good at connectedness unless the company is pretty small, right? So if you're in a small startup with 20 people, you're going to know all of them, right? You're going to be friends with all those people. If you're in a company of 10,000 people, you're likely just talking to people who are in your same, you know, whatever your job is, all those other people that are your friends are in identical jobs and, and identical economic circumstances. And then we come to something which is a little bit different, religious groups. What happens in religious groups? Yeah, so religious groups are interesting. They, of the ones we, you know, we're looking across these different categories, religious groups have not so good exposure. You know, most churches uh, or temples will tend to have people of more or less the same economic background. So they don't necessarily bring people together in terms of, you know, having rich mixed with poor and a lot of exposure. But when they do, then they form friendships. So they're really good in terms of friending bias. Once people are in these church environments, they tend to form friendships across these economic divides and social classes. So, so you see, or at least economic classes, so they're, they're forming relationships across class boundaries once they're in a church. It's just that, you know, churches aren't great at bringing people together, but once they're there, they're great at getting them to form friendships. And what's fascinating there is the, the solution then to increase economic connectivity is, is really different in a company where exposure is high, but bias is, is a problem. A totally different solution to driving it up in, in churches where the bias isn't the problem, but you just need to get more of a mix of people in each of the churches. Which brings us then to high schools. And as we were going through this, I just keep thinking of the movie Pretty in Pink with the rich kids and the poor kids and, and how all this. So, so high schools really are this melting pot for it all, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and high schools, as we all know, are a tough time in life. It's an exciting time in life, but your social circles are so important to you and so critical. And, you know, high schools vary dramatically, again, both in terms of exposure some high schools are in very poor neighborhoods and have no exposure. Some are just in rich areas. And, and again, you know, there's no poor there, so there's no, they're not integrating. And then there's others that are actually very well mixed. And whether or not they end up forming friendships actually seems to depend a lot on the high school. So there's a huge variation across different schools. You know, take the ones that are 50-50 mixes. You see a very broad spectrum of whether or not you get high economic connectedness out of those schools. And there was one school in particular that you talk about, which actively went to try and increase the economic connectedness. I don't think they'd seen our study yet, but, but at least they were thinking along these lines. And so this was Berkeley High School. And 
they are you know a school of, of several thousand students so it's a big school and actually draws from a pretty diverse set of students, both in terms of economic backgrounds and ethnicities and so forth. So it's a, a very diverse school. But it was a school that what tends to happen in these large schools is you'll have, say, advanced honors calculus course in math, and then you'll have a, a regular track, and then you'll have a remedial one for people who didn't, you know, weren't well trained in, in math coming into high school. And what tends to happen then is once you have these different tracks, is the students just separate out. And it's almost as if you have two separate schools. You know, within the same school, you have a rich school and a poor school, and these students never, you know, see each other. And it, it could be that they're, you know, almost they're in different lunches at different times. They're, you know, their lockers are in different, everything could be different about it. And so you have to do something to bring them together. And so, you know, what they did was they tried to build what they called, I guess, hives, so they had these homeroom kind of things where the students would come together at least once a day with a group of students through all four years and try to have those be cohesive groups that would cut across all the different lines. So you'd be randomly put into one of these groups and that can foster those friendships, right? So this was a way of putting the kids together and having them be together for a long period of time. And, you know, that can build those cross-class cross, cross class ties. And I was reading that the arts are really powerful in this, that the arts are really good at getting cross-class. Sport, not so much because you can, class comes into sport because you can have a better bus and be dropped there and have, you know, all that sort of stuff. But but the arts are different. There's a lot that we're still, part of the wonder of this study is that we'll be able to put a lot of this data out and then try and unpack you know, what is it about the arts that's an equalizer or, you know, these religious institutions about fostering low friending bias? And why is it that people form friendships across class lines in certain places and not others? So I think there's still a lot to unpack here. But, you know, the the richness of the data allow us to see that there's pretty strong differences. And we know the kinds of things that that are highly predictive of these outcomes. So we can start trying to figure out what could be better policies to try and help people form cross-class relationships and um, ultimately rise out of poverty? Which is a lovely segue just to finish with. And we'll put links to your papers in the in the show notes and also to a New York Times article on, on the work that he did. But to finish, Matthew... What are the levers, you know, if we if we think of we're trying to pull some levers to increase social mobility and level the playing field, from your study, what are the levers that don't work or are less, even though intuitive, they might seem like good levers to pull, but actually are not good at, at increasing mobility? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, some of this sort of says, you know, just the strength of, you know, some of the social capital measures that didn't pop out could be very good ones for other purposes. So building really cohesiveness, strong cohesiveness inside a, a community or getting people to volunteer and so forth can be useful for lots of purposes, but it doesn't necessarily lead to economic advancement. So there, you know, you have to figure out how do you get people together to change those aspirations, to change the knowledge. And, you know, you need to do it at a fairly young age. So if you're doing this when somebody's in their 20s or 30s, those economic connectedness might not have nearly the same impact as if you're doing it when they're 12 years old. And is there one lever to pull with economic connectedness that jumped out for you in this? 
Well, I think, you know, the exposure is a pretty obvious one. It's not surprising that the friending bias and how different it was across different places really was surprising. So the fact that that is really dramatically different across areas, and it turns out that even when we look at, you know, trying to predict economic mobility, friending bias separately from exposure still predicts your outcomes, right? So it's it's a necessary ingredient. You really have to figure out how to form those friendships. And I think, you know, another important aspect of this is social engineering is a dangerous thing, right? So it doesn't always work the way we expect it. And so trying to move institutions around and push people's networks in a, in a certain way might lead to unintended consequences and backfire. So, you know, also we can try and think about if economic connectedness is mattering, why is it mattering? How can we get those aspirations? How can we get that information into people if they're missing it, right? So we don't necessarily have to form those connections, but we have to figure out why they're mattering and try to figure out what we can do to help the people that don't have those connections act as if they did. It's a fabulous study. I'd encourage everyone to go and have a look at the papers. Matthew, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Thanks so much, Sean. It was really a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 